Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. One of the most fundamental barriers to serving God is our apparent lack of resources. We fear that if we follow where he leads, we will end up destitute. Has that thought ever gone through your head? Boy, if, I ever had to, if God ever really got a hold of me, he, he's, a, he's a radical. He's, uh, he's a little unstable. And he will take me someplace and I'll end up living under a bridge if I really followed God. Now, we laugh at that, but I'm telling you, that is a fundamental fear. It's a very basic issue with a lot of people. I don't dare do what God says and follow him or I'm going to end up ruined because he doesn't seem to have a good handle on things. At least that's the way we think about it. Like Israel, we stand on the borders of Egypt and gaze into the wilderness. And we see that barren wasteland, in that barren wasteland, no possible way of surviving. We find ourselves caught between God's call to follow and our own logic, which says, this is impossible. But it's in the wilderness that we discover God's commitment to us. Our own resources quickly run out, leaving us desperate, in desperate need. And this desperation forces us to turn to God for help. And when we do, we see him miraculously meet our needs again and again. Between Egypt and the promised land... There's a big space called what? The wilderness. It's a desert. It's an empty place. Hundreds of miles of nothing but rocks and dirt, a few uh, scraggly bushes, and it's not a place you can survive in. Certainly, you can't take two million people and have them live in a place like that for how long? It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. I'm going, to, I'm going to talk to you about a very fundamental thing, and, and God makes a big deal of this. I'll show you that. This is an important principle he really wants established in our thinking, and that's this. Where God guides, he provides. Say that with me. Where God guides, he provides. Say it again. Where God guides, he provides. If you and I don't believe that, if we don't believe that he is our source, that he's a miraculous provider who can care for us wherever he leads us, we will not come free. We will not leave bondage. We're going to stay in Egypt because there's a certain comfort and security in bondage. To walk out of bondage, to walk into the will of God, to begin to move on what God tells us to do is a scary thing. And in fact, I'm going to argue today, it's an impossible thing. That, almost, that not just Israel's experience, but your experience and mine, that where God asks us to go, as we look at it in the natural, it's impossible to go there. We don't have the resources to do what God tells us to do. And so if we rely on our own understanding, we'll not follow. We'll not go where he leads us to go. We'll stay in bondage. That's why this principle is so important. It's a key. It's a foundational thing. If I follow God, will I starve? If I follow God, will I be left destitute? If I follow God, will I ruin my family? If I follow God, will I spoil my children's future? If I follow God, will I be undone? The answer today, in a moment. <laughs> Exodus chapter 12. We are thankfully just about totally done now with the plagues. I've actually learned a lot, but it's not been easy territory. We're starting at verse 15 today. The Lord is talking to Moses and he's explaining, first of all, the Passover feast. And then he says these words, which I need to tell you that I don't, I, I, I look at a lot of different sources of people to see what they say about things. And nobody knows what this passage really means. Um, 
they, many of the commentators will just skip over it and sort of ignore it. I mean, some of them you wouldn't even know it was in there. And uh, others come up with this theory that, uh, well, they think that it must be talking about sin. And I'll, I'll say more about that in a minute. But I know what it's about. And, and you're going to be the third group in the world, last night's two services or the first two, that know what this means. I, I, I could be wrong, but chances aren't likely. I, I was joking. If you're, you're new here, you're going, who is this guy? I'm just kidding. I, I could be wrong, but uh, you see what you think. But I believe there's a powerful message here. Starting in verse 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses, for whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now, that's the stunning part. All of a sudden, if you have any leaven in your food at all, you're going to be disfellowshipped from the nation of Israel. You're cast away. I mean, that's a strong discipline. That's, that's huge. This isn't a small thing. You eat a little bit of, of, of fluffy bread and you're, you know, and you're out of there. I mean, so God cares a lot about this. This means a lot to him. It's important to him. He would never say such a thing if this was a small little matter. This is a big deal to God. And so we have to discover why is this such a big deal to you? By the way, do we all know what leaven is? Leaven is yeast. It's a little single cell plant. And you, it, you put it in bread dough or other things and it causes it to ferment. Actually, that's what happens when bread rises. You stick it in there and it ferments the dough. And when a dough ferments, it, it's rotting, basically, it produces a gas. And so your bread is full of gas. <laughs> and it makes those bubbles, you know, and it lifts everything up with this gas as, as the stuff's rotting. So that's a comforting thought. <clears throat> Uh, on the first day, it says, you shall have a holy assembly. That would mean a gathering for worship. Everyone was to gather to worship. And another holy assembly on the seventh day. So there's this week, seven days of nothing but unleavened bread. And the first day, by the way, is the same as Passover. So you start with Passover. You're having unleavened bread that day. And then for the following week, you have nothing but unleavened bread. You shall, verse 17, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. I want this remembered. I want this feast celebrated as long as until the end of time. I want it done. Remember this. Because there's a lesson here you mustn't forget. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at the evening... You shall eat unleavened bread. And see, that's the same time as Passover. Until the 21st day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is an alien or a native of the land, you shall not eat anything leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. I'll tell you in short what I think it is. Many, many people say, well, it, leaven represents sin. And, and it does. Paul in Corinthians 5 refers to it that way. But it doesn't always represent sin because sometimes Jesus uses leaven in a positive light in his, in his parables. It's a force that infuses things silently, imperceptibly transforms something. And so the kingdom of God can silently and imperceptibly transform a, a whole community or a person uh, by its power. Or sin can come in and silently and imperceptibly transform a, a group of people or a heart in the same kind of thing. It has a corruptive power or a, or, a, or a good power, but it's that quality of yeast, that kind of thing. The problem is that the, the, rab, not, the rabbis, nobody came up with the idea really or thought of it particularly as sin for about a thousand years after this. until about a thousand years after it. So I don't think Moses and Israel are thinking that. Nobody thought of it yet. That wasn't part of the way they viewed it. And so it means something else. 
And I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it's absolutely a prophetic model of what they were about to go through. Their life would begin, their new nation would begin with Passover. And then they would march into the wilderness. And I'm going to show you a verse in a minute. With no preparations made for their food. It says that specifically. They made no preparations for their food. Now that's insane. That's nuts. You don't take two million people into a hostile wilderness with no preparations for your food. You will starve. You can't make it. And yet, they did make it. They didn't just make it for a couple of weeks. They made it for 40 years. Whoa. And how did they make it for 40 years? What happened that made that possible? The Lord caused bread from heaven to come and in the mornings they would wake up and there would be this goo on the ground. And when it dried, they could break that stuff up and gather it and it was sweet, tasted like coriander seed, like honey with wafers. And they survived on the bread of heaven for 40 years. That's that's. Incredible miracle. It would be hard to argue there's been anything more profound hardly other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ that for 40 years, 2 million people survived in a wilderness with nothing but rocks and stone. I have some videotapes of the places they were. And when we get to some of this, if I may show you some video clips and let you just see this, the landscape that we're talking about that we survived in for 40 years. When you see it, you're going to understand this was incredible. It's impossible. It can't be done. Unless, of course, God is our source. And if God will provide where he guides, then we can survive and miracles can happen. you got to believe that. If we don't believe he's our source, you'll never move. If you think you'll starve and you'll be undone when you follow God, you'll never move. You've got to believe this truth that he is your provider. Let's turn to verse 39. After this ordinance, then the Passover night happened. Uh, Pharaoh awoke and his firstborn was dead. He, in his grief and shock, calls for Moses. He says to him, get out of here. Go on, have your service. Take your people and while you're at it, bless me. Your God is so powerful, I fear him. Ask him to bless me too. They then take their things in a, a, probably a shofar blowing the ram's horn or something. Uh, two million people. The signal went out. And people rushed. They were dressed in their sandals. Remember, their robes were girded about them. They were ready to go already. The shofar blows and out they go, taking their flocks and herds and heading down a, about 20 miles or so together to a place called Sukkoth. And there they gather two million strong with all their flocks and herds by their tribes, waiting now for the signal. The interesting thing about Sukkoth is it's located on one of actually three routes to the east out of Egypt. I was noticing the ancient routes and the modern roads today are on the same path. I mean, that's just the way you go. So nothing's changed. You want to see where they were, you go pick up a modern map and they'll show you, look at the roads across. They're the same ones that they took thousands of years ago. There's one road that leads right along the Mediterranean coast. Now that's the nice one. If you're going to go from Egypt to Israel, you'd just like to walk through that Mediterranean sea air and just stroll on up the coast. And you would have thought that God would have taken them that way. We actually thought about it. I'll show you the verse in a minute. That would have taken probably a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks to get all the, you got to move at the rate that your flocks and herds will move. And so you'll slow down a bit, but you could get everybody up there and certainly in a month. And that would have been the easy way. Problem was there was hostile, warring tribes, nations with very well-organized military 
uh, right at the end of that road. And this group of slaves weren't any way prepared emotionally, mentally. Uh, they, there was nothing there for them to be able to fight that kind of battle. They just weren't there yet. Then there's another road south of that, and it goes straight across the top uh, center part of the Sinai Peninsula. It's called the Way to Shur. And it goes through the land of Shur. That's why they call it that. Shur meaning a wall. There's some place there where the, where the cliffs are just straight up and down. There's a long wall. That's why they call it that. And you go down this road. That's where Sukkoth was located. That area is right on the road to Shur, right on the border, heading east. Two million people gather there. Let's see what happens. Verse, verse 1 of uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 37, excuse me. Did I take you to where? Where are you now? Okay, I'm getting there. I'm going to 37 first. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramesses. That's the city they built, the fortified city they built up in, in Goshen, to Sukkoth. About 600,000 men on foot aside from children. So count another 600,000 easily of women. And then add all the children where they've got two or three children. They, they, they love children. So you've got lots of children. So you have easily two million people gathered there. A mixed multitude also went up with them. Who would that be? That's some of these Egyptians who say, your God is the real God. We're done with these bird heads and stuff, gods. No more of this. We're out of here. We're going with you. Yeah, exactly. You know, on, the, on that Passover night, on that Passover night, it was people who had faith that were saved. It was not a racial thing. It was not like Egyptians die, Israelis live. It was whoever had blood on the door. Whoever put blood on the door, Egyptian or Jewish, you're safe. And so there would have been Egyptians who said, can we come into your house? Now, there were some rules for that, and there's an explanation in a few verses, actually. I'm not taking you there. But they, but they were welcome to be saved, and their firstborn and their families would have been saved just as well as the Israeli families were saved. And if you had an Israeli family who decided, you know, I'm not putting blood on this nice door. I just painted that thing. There'd be a dead son inside that night. So matter of faith, whoever walked by faith, and some of these Egyptians are saying, it is clear who the real God is. I mean, and we're following you. We're going with you guys. A mixed multitude also went up with them along with flocks and herds and a very large number of livestock. And they baked the dough. Here we go. They baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay. And mine says, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The Hebrew literally says, and they had not prepared food for a journey for themselves. Two million people were headed out into the most barren, one of the most barren parts of planet Earth. And we haven't prepared food. Does that make sense? How long would their resources last? Well, let me show you. Go to chapter 15, verse 22. This is right after the Egyptian army is drowned in the sea. They're now standing on the east side of the Red Sea. And they head into the wilderness there. And it says, Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. And they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went Three days into the wilderness and found no water, and they're out of water. So their water lasted three days. How about their food? Chapter 16, verse 1. Then they set out from Elam. Never mind, I'll tell you, we'll learn about that later. All the congregations of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. That does not mean it was a bad place where people did bad things. It's just that was the name of the place. Which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. What day did they depart from Egypt? Does anybody recall? The 15th day of the first month. Remember that? This, this month shall be your first month. And now we're on the 15th day of the... So we have run out of food in one month, 30 days. That's how long the stuff they had carried and they had packed along with them. What little they had... 
I mean, they're starving by now. We are really hungry, so we probably ran out a while back. So it didn't even last the month, and they're starving and getting frightened. It was not humanly possible to escape Egypt. How would you have packed enough food for two million people? How would you have done it? In other words, even if the Egyptian armies had just said, you can leave, they couldn't have gotten out of there. There was a physical barrier. It was impossible. There weren't the resources to take the people out of there and transport an entire nation 250 miles through that kind of wilderness wasn't going to happen. There's no, there's no rest stops on the way. There's no stores to buy anything. There was no way. They would have had to, if anything, store food for years somehow and have great wagons or something to get themselves across. And that just wasn't going to happen. They were indeed slaves, completely trapped in Egypt. That's how we sometimes feel, isn't it? Not only are we trapped by the situation, but the circumstances, there's no money, we can't get out. We look at the situation, we say, I haven't got money, I haven't got opportunities, there's all these barriers, I can't get out of here. There's no freedom I can have. But I want you to see the miracle begin. Verse 4, there in chapter 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. He wants to see if they'll do what he asks and how they collect the food. And of course they don't. It will come about on the sixth day when they prepare that what they bring in it will be twice as much as they gather. He wanted them to have a Sabbath. And so there will be a Sabbath day. He, they get twice as much bread on the sixth day. And they didn't and stuff rotted. And we went, we went on. I'll, we'll read that another time. Then down to verse uh, 13. So it came about at evening that the quails, they had asked for meat, and so God sent this enormous flock of quail, came up and covered the camp. That would have been messy. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp, this gooey carbohydrate on the surface of the ground. And when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, in Hebrew, manna, which means, what is it? That is, that's the Hebrew term. So manna means, what's that stuff? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. Now, um, an omer, in case you don't know, is a tenth of an ephah. <laughs> so you just take an ephah and take one tenth of it and you've got your omer. Nobody knows how much this stuff is. The guess is it's about two quarts. But we're probably seeing, I think the ephah was something a, they said a human could get into. So it's a pretty big measure. It's one-tenth of that. I don't know. Two quarts, somebody says. He says, you take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And the sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much, some gathered little. They pooled it all together, and when they measured it with an omer, he who gathered much had no excess. He who gathered little had no lack. Everybody got the same amount. Each man gathered as much as he should eat. Down to verse 32. Well, actually, verse 31 is a good insight. The house of Israel named it manna. What's that stuff? And it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers of honey. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. I mean, you might start a diet of this. <laughs> then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. It would have been there in the Ark of the Covenant, I suppose, or before it. And as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The sons of Israel ate the manna 
40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And then it stopped. Isn't that amazing? The Lord provided bread from heaven. That's the feast of unleavened bread, I think. That's what he was referring to. He was saying to them, I don't want you to ever forget. Don't ever forget that when I delivered you, I took you from Passover night and I fed you with a bread from heaven for 40 years. When, when there was no resource, I provided resource for you. Don't ever forget I'm your source. Don't ever forget that where I guide, I, where I guide, I provide. Don't forget that lesson. That's how you stay free people. Let's apply it for a minute. Does this apply to us today? I think it does. I would imagine that there may be people who are afraid to leave an ungodly job because the thought comes there'll be no other job for me. You may be caught in a thing where you're being asked to do something immoral or dishonest. You may be in something where there's, it's fundamentally an impure kind of industry and, and you feel guilty about it and troubled by it, but you're afraid to leave. You may even sense the Lord wants you to leave, but you're afraid to because you know the job market and the unemployment. You know all of the troubles. You read the papers. You've got all of this going through your head and you say, I can't do this. I'll starve. If I take this step, I'll be in devastation. So if God provides me something first, then I would be willing to leave. Isn't that usually the way we think about it? When I see the manna on the ground, I may be willing to enter the wilderness. And God says, no, you enter the wilderness and then we'll get some manna. It's always our step first. That's the problem with this whole process. Afraid to, some people may be afraid to move out of an immoral relationship, saying, I can't afford it. I don't know how many times I've heard this. People living together saying, we know it's wrong. We should get married or we shouldn't be, even be together. But I can't leave this person because I can't afford to live alone. I'll, I'll end up under a bridge. And yet if God tells us that, what will he do? He'll provide. See, do you understand how fundamental this is? I mean, this is really important. If I'm going to obey God on a whole lot of stuff, I've got to believe at this practical level, I will not starve. I will not be left ruined and destitute. God will take responsibility to provide for me if I obey him and take these risky steps where he calls me. If I don't think he's my source, I'll never do it. I'll never do it. Some people may be afraid to go into the ministry with the thought, if I do, my family will be impoverished. Let me give you an illustration of this. Paul Risser, our, our former president who was here and is a dear man and someone I still love very much, he tells this account. When he was a student at Life Bible College, uh, he worked at a law firm in downtown Los Angeles. Life used to be located right there in Echo Park, just near the downtown high-rise center of Los Angeles. So our students, I taught there for three years, our students would get great jobs. I mean, they were raking it in. They're, you know, they're honest, they're smart, so everybody wants them. And so they're down in these high high-profile firms, their executive secretaries and stuff of, of people making a lot of money, some of them, and God blessing them. You know, often they left someplace in Kansas and went out to see if they could survive. I'm serious. And if they could end up, uh, you know, in the ministry, God, uh, will you support me? And then they end up raking it in. And um, he was working at a law firm in downtown Los Angeles. And when he graduated from life, uh, his boss, he, he went to his, he put in his resignation and his boss called him and he said, what is this? And he says, it's my resignation. I'm, I'm going into the ministry. And his boss said, young man, I, I've got to, I've got to talk to you honestly. He said, this is crazy. This is crazy. He says, you know what's going to happen if you go into the ministry? You're going to starve. And he said, it's one thing for you to starve, but it's another thing for you to disregard the needs of your children. Do you realize your children will never get a college education because of the choice you're making? You should stay here. You've got a good job. You're doing well. You can rise in this firm. You're crazy. You're insane to take this step and head out into the ministry. You're, if you don't care for yourself, won't you at least think about your children? 
How would you like that for a send-off? Well, it, it, it hurt. And Paul then turns around with kind of a smile and he says, Now, I want to tell you about my poor children. He has three sons. He starts going down the litany. He says, Now, my first son, if I'm not mistaken, I may have the order wrong. But he says, My first son uh, graduated, I believe it was from, it was either Annapolis or West Point. He made it to the academy, graduated from there. I think he's the one that's so rich that Paul takes him on mission trips with him. And whenever needs come up on the field, you know, he's sitting there talking to somebody. He said, yeah, if we just had this, we could have a hospital. If we just had this, we could have a, a Bible school, you know. And Paul will say, oh, that's no problem. And he turned, is it, son? <laughs> his son knows what's coming. I mean, he's got his checkbook in his pocket. Right, Dad? He just takes it out and writes it. Now, that, that poor boy just suffered miserably under, uh, because his dad went in the ministry. The next one, if I recall, graduating, I think he has a, a graduate degrees uh, from UCLA or USC, very high profile, <laughs> powerfully uh, trained and uh, placed himself. The third son I know quite well. He was in my, a number of my classes for years. He's pastoring one of our larger four-square churches in America right now and uh, is absolutely thriving, has a wonderful family of his own. So Paul says, yeah, my poor kids. When I went into the ministry, they're just all devastated. And uh, Mary and I had occasion to, to, to sit with the family at, at his birthday party, wasn't it? And all the family and the grandkids, and they're all there, and they're yucking it up, you know, and having a wonderful time. Yeah, they aren't suffering. They have, God bless them. And yet the fear is there. The perception is there. If I were to actually follow the call, if I were to do what God told me to do, I'd be devastated. And then you begin to think, what about my kids? It might be one thing for me to do this, but what about my children? Will they be ruined? Some of us may be afraid to say, if I follow God to the mission field, I'll be destitute in my old age. I'll live under a bridge. Some might say, I'm afraid to have children because I don't see how we'll afford them. I hear this talk a bunch. We can't afford to have more children. I don't believe that children are an expense. You never think of children as an expense. If God gives you children, if he's having it, you have them, and he will simply provide. Where God guides, he... Yes, there'll be the finances for your children. I know people that say, we can't get married because I don't have enough money to buy a house. I've heard that. Like, get over it. <laughs> Live in some tiny little apartment. When you're, who cares? If, you're, if you, you love each other, eat crackers and cheese. <laughs> Mary and I, are, when we were first married, our, our food budget was $10 a week. Now, that was, there's inflation tied into that thing, but that would be what? A, I don't know, $30 a week now? Something like that. But it wasn't much. I mean... There was a lot of crackers and cheese and whatever else, you know, she could sort of put together, uh, learn to eat lentils and like them. <laughs> Notice it was unleavened bread. It wasn't cake. I mean, there's a lesson there. Some people seem to say that the light, if you're going to walk with God, you've got to be sort of extravagantly wealthy. That's simply an American myth. It's a bunch of baloney, and greedy Americans love to hear it, and it will fill churches. But it's not the truth. Now, I'll have to say this. He's a generous, loving father. He delights to care for us. But our hearts are never to be set on this planet. And if what you're looking for is a God who'll give you the junk you want, you need a lamp you can rub or, or, or you know, something else. Uh, you're, in the wrong, you're in the wrong religion because this one's led by Jesus Christ. And our eyes are set on, on a whole other kind of treasure. And as we set our eyes on people and on eternal life, and on seeing people's lives transformed and changed and families restored, as we see the things of God being brought into people's lives, we know our needs will be supplied generously and abundantly, but not extravagantly. In fact, I think our hearts would not want that. We have enough. We're grateful for it. But it's just not our goal in life. 
If your goal's money, you won't like where that God leads. Some may be afraid to move, and they say, I know I'm called to go back with my family, or I'm called to this particular place, I know the Lord wants us there, but I don't think there's a job there for me. I hear the job market's way down there. What are you doing? You're thinking with the natural mind. You're reasoning with your natural mind. You're speculating on what you can see. You're standing in Egypt on the border, looking into the wilderness, saying, I don't see any food out there. There's nothing out there. Oh, that's nasty country. Man, you'll personal starve out in that country. And you would be right. You see the problem here? I'm not saying your perceptions are wrong. I'm not saying there is a good job market there. I'm not saying there is any natural, obvious solutions. Your evaluation is probably 100% correct. But it hasn't included something. It hasn't included a miracle. It hasn't included this fact that where God guides, He provides. That if God tells you, and that, by the way, is the, is the foundation of this equation, if God tells you. Now, I will say that Israel had a, something of an advantage. They had to follow this huge cloud. That's all they had to do. That puppy was big, and it glowed at night. Oh, you just have to follow it, you know. And when it stops, you stop, and when it goes, you go. But you have an advantage, too. You now have the fullness of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And there can be people that are presumptuous and foolish and they just sort of say, I'm going to do this and God will have to provide. Boy, I've watched people hit the wall on that one. You, know, you start forcing God, you got, start playing this game, you do what you want, trying to force his hand and make him do stuff for you, you are going to splat. Amen. However, if the Lord really has spoken to you, you know it. You know that you know that you know God's told you. Then you step. And there will be bread from heaven feeding you. And you'll be clothed like the lilies of the field. The Lord's promised it. Let me show you. The, let's go and let's listen to Jesus. Let's see what he says on this. John chapter 6. Verse 1. <clears throat> After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, and therefore the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to, notice, test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. He's checking Philip's attitude. What's he looking for in Philip? There they are. They're out in the middle of nowhere. They've got a huge crowd. And if I recall, they've been there a long time. And so they're very, they're hungry. This is going to be a problem. They've been following him for uh, three days at least and not eating. And so there's this enormous crowd, and it's probably 15,000 people. You've got 5,000 men, you've got women, you've got children, you've got this enormous group. They're just, he's sort of standing there, and Philip's beside him. He says, wow, a lot of people. Who? <laughs> Who is going to feed them? They look hungry. He, and he's testing Philip to see if Philip knows something. What's he looking for? If God guides, will he provide? Is this something guided of God? Obviously, this is, this is an event God is ordained, but there's no food. And so if Philip remembered the Feast of Unleavened Bread, if Philip remembered how God provided bread from heaven, Philip might have answered, well, Lord, there's nothing available, but he, you provided bread from heaven, you could feed these people. And the Lord would have gone, yeah, man. But Philip didn't. <laughs> Philip did what you and I would have said, I prayed. 
Philip, verse 7, answered him and said, Man alive, it would take 200 days' wages worth of bread. Maybe 30,000. I don't know. You can add up what your day's wage is times 200. You can figure out what he said it was. Worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to just receive a little. We haven't got the money to pay for this thing. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, there's a lad over here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? And you can see Andrew and Philip making eye contact like, well, that's one good sandwich. (laughs) And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, but the men sat down and in in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish as much as they wanted. So as he's breaking these little, this little bunch of food, he's breaking it in his hands, giving it out, filling these baskets. Apparently it just keeps breaking off. It doesn't run out. He fills them and they take them out and distribute it. And he breaks the fish and fills that and keeps distributing it, distributing it. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments. Notice he doesn't waste anything so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Bread from heaven. He wanted to see if Philip and Andrew, if his disciples were getting the point. Did they know? Because they were going to need to know in the future. They were going to get sent to the corners of the uttermost part of the world. They were on their way and they would all head out as evangelists and preachers and teachers. If they didn't get this through their head, they, were not, they wouldn't go either. They needed to learn this lesson. He says, where are we going to feed these? They didn't know. But then they saw him provide that. One more passage, and that's uh, Matthew 6. Verse 25, to begin with. You know this passage as well as I do, I'll bet. It says, but listen to it. In light of what you've heard, listen to what he says. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Then he says, look at the birds God feeds them. They don't labor. Look at the lilies of the field. God clothes them more beautifully than Solomon in his glory. Verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do you not... Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things, but your heavenly Father knows you need them. Listen, folks, he knows your children are going to have to go to college or get an education. He knows you need food and clothing. He knows that. He knows you need a place to live. He knows you'll need a job. He He knows those things as well as you do. And when he guides you there, he takes those needs into consideration. He's already planned to have those taken care of. It's not an afterthought. You don't have to get out there, live under a bridge and beg. It's like, oh, you need a job, huh? Oh, okay. Gee, hadn't thought of that. He knows. He says these things will be added unto you. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough cares of its own. And then let your eye go over to verse 11, that same chapter. And then just read it out loud with me. See if it makes sense. Give us this day our daily bread. Say it again. Give us this day our daily bread. Once more. Give us this day our daily bread. What was the daily bread? It was the manna. Day after day, every day they would wake up and the provision would be there. Notice he didn't give them huge supplies to last a long time. He made them need him regularly. He likes that. He's not looking to be some kind of just supply system, you know, that you have what you need occasionally and check in with him once in a while. He likes us to need him. 
our daily bread, our manna from heaven. Lord, give us today what we need as your disciples. People, if he hasn't become our source, if we don't trust him and believe that he's our source, we will never be free to follow him because fear and logic will hold us back. One last verse I'm going to just read to you. You don't have to turn there with me. But if you want it in the future, it's Psalm 78. Here he's talking about Israel and how they reacted. How he brought water from the rocks and how they tested God by complaining about the food they were served. They got tired of manna. And then it says in verse 19, and they spoke against God. And they said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Will you tell me? Can he feed us in a place where there's no resources? Can he take care of his own? Can he guide us into freedom? And we'll know that he will feed us when there is nothing of natural resource around. Can we trust our God to prepare a table in the wilderness? They tested God. They, even as he did these things, they challenged him and defied him. And God in his love still took them into the promised land. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> well, actually, he killed most of them. That's right. He took their children in. <laughs> because when they got to the border, they wouldn't go. It's not his fault. He tried. He tried to take them in. How about you? Anybody here today and God has spoken to you or you know there's a leader, guidance going on in your life? You know there's steps you're supposed to take. Maybe you're supposed to go to school. Maybe you're supposed to get married. Maybe he's calling you to have more children. Maybe he's calling you into the ministry. Maybe he's calling you into a mission. Maybe it's not just permanent missionary, but you know you're supposed to be taking steps. And you keep saying, I would, but I don't have the money. I would do it, but I don't have the money. I can't afford it. We just can't do that. We can't afford it. If that's your comment over and over again, you know what you're saying? I don't believe that God can prepare a table in the wilderness. I don't believe that if I take that step, and this is all, back always to obedience, not just presumption, but you know that God's saying it. I don't believe he'd provide. I believe we'd be ruined if we followed God. That's why I said of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I want you to remember this feast and practice this and remember this for as long as you're together. Don't ever forget this every year. Remember, I fed you in the wilderness. I prepared a table where there was nothing and I will do it for you now. That's the point. He'll prepare us a table. He prepares you a table. He wants to do the miracles for you. It was your Lord who said to you, his disciples, don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about what you clothe yourself with. You seek the kingdom. You follow where God leads you. And these things that you need will be added to you. You are free men and women. Totally free. No chains of financial bondage will hold you back. But as you follow the Lord, you will be supplied what you need. Would you bow your heads with me? Praise you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask for just a fresh gift of faith. We confess that, Lord, probably all of us at various times and places have doubted that you could prepare a table in the wilderness, just like Israel. We doubted you. And we've held back and we've, we've peered into the wilderness and said there's no way we can survive if we follow God. Today we confess this. We acknowledge it to be sin. It's unbelief. Lord, like Andrew and Philip, we, we didn't pass the test. And yet you give us fresh opportunity. And today we say to you, you can prepare a table in the wilderness. In fact, you will indeed do so. Your word is true. When you make a promise, you keep it. 
And if we follow you and seek the kingdom of God, we will have added to us what we need. We are free to follow, free to obey, free to grow, free to minister, free to serve, free to follow our hearts. Nothing of the chains of finances and practical issues will hold us back for our God can give us bread from heaven. Oh, Lord Jesus, come now and free us all. Who today needs to respond to this? This has been a point of bondage maybe for you. Maybe you've, you've refused to obey something out of, out of what seemed to you the best of logic. You just felt you know God wants you to, but it just made no sense and you have to be reasonable. And you were just plain afraid to take that step. Or maybe you're at that place right now where you know you're supposed to take a step and are debating and struggling over it. Comes down to the point, do you know that the Lord's spoken to you? But some of you will know. And he will have spoken to you. It's, it's absolutely him. So you need to say today, I trust you. I trust you. I will not let fear. I will not let even my own deductive reasonings of, of evaluating the potential resources, I'm not going to let that decide it. You say, have a child? Well, have a child. You say, go to school? I'll go to school. You say, go to the mission field? I'll go to the mission field. You say, get married? I'll get married. You say, move to that town? I'll move to that town. I'm going to trust you to provide for me wherever you lead me. Who needs to respond? Would you lift your hand just before the Lord and say, I hear you, God. I hear you. That's me, and I, today I'm moving in that. Lift them high. Come on. Holy Spirit, see our hands right now. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Just keep them up for a minute. Lord, we with our hands lifted up right now, confess to you, you can provide a table in the wilderness. No, no. You will provide a table in the wilderness. You'll do it. There is no reason that we can't follow you and do all that you have spoken to our hearts. There is nothing holding us back from obedience and from fruitfulness, from joyful discipleship. Nothing will hold us back, for you know the needs we have, and you will provide them as abundantly, even as miraculously as you did for Israel. Bread from heaven, water from a rock. The same Lord, now dwelling within us, is with us. Forgive us for doubting that. Forgive us for doubting that. Holy Spirit, I just stand in agreement with every hand that's raised right now. May your power and presence guide and bless each beloved. Go before, make a way. I thank you before I've even seen it, before I've even seen it, that as they obey your voice, you will provide for this beloved abundantly, above and beyond what they could ask or think. I thank you, Lord, for freeing them to fruitfulness and to service. In Jesus' powerful name we pray it. If that is your prayer, would you say amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.